Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael McNutt, Weedy's Director of Education and Events, sitting in today for Matthew Albright. On today's episode, I welcome Kermit Farber, founder and chief ethos officer for PATHS, a company that promises to improve patient outcomes through an optimized doctor-patient experience. We'll chat with Kermit about his background and how, through darkness, PATHS has become the light for many patients needing extra quality time with their physicians. But first, a quick word about Weedy. For nearly 30 years, Weedy has been an instrumental force in igniting public-private partnerships to empower meaningful changes for the American healthcare system. Recognized and trusted as a formal advisor to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Weedy is the leading authority on the use of health IT to efficiently improve health information exchange, enhance care quality, and reduce cost. With a focus on advancing standards for electronic administrative transactions, promoting data privacy and security, Weedy has been instrumental in aligning the industry in an effort to harmonize administrative and clinical data. Learn more about Weedy and how your organization can benefit by joining us on our website, wedi.org. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome today Kermit Farmer, founder of Paths. Kermit, welcome to the podcast. And thank you, Michael. It's a, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. Oh, my pleasure also. Uh, you're also not only the founder, but the chief ethos officer. Now, um, I got a D in, uh, <laughs> in philosophy back in the day at George Mason University. But I do recall my Aristotle, uh, the distinguishing character, sentiment, moral nature, or guiding beliefs of a person, group, or institution. So that's very interesting. Explain to me what you see as the chief ethos officer, what that is. Well... I think ethos is a a better suited term for me personally than executive. Um, What my charge is, is really the the character of the company and creating a culture for those after me to take over when I'm no longer here. When I think of the executive function, I think there's a lot of people that can do the the executive leadership of what our company can do. Um, I'm just charged with creating the initial culture and the character, if you will, of the company. So that's why I'm the, it's, it's a more CEO fitting title to me um, personally. I love it. I love it. Now your background was in education. A lot of your previous background was in education and it was a a personal tragedy that inspired the creation of paths, uh, created a pathway for patients and positioned you as its guiding light. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your background um, and how you got yourself into this healthcare realm uh, to the point where you're now the CEO chief ethos officer at PATHS. Sure. Um, I'll say quite by accident, really. Um, Two years ago, I wouldn't have thought I would be doing anything um, in the healthcare space, really. Um, My uh, personal background uh, was in logistics management with a Royal Caribbean cruise line, Um, worked with kids and youth, um, through my 20s. And after that, I had a chance to manage a a NASA um, affiliate called Challenger Learning Center. And I would argue a lot of my worldview is based on what NASA did in the 50s and 60s that I I taught a lot on. Um, A lot of times we have um, obstacles or distractions to what the mission is, but you have to put those obstacles and the the distractions aside to accomplish the goal. And in their case, it was putting man on the moon. 
after working at the Challenger Learning Center, um, I was a husband to an, an amazing person who also happened to be an oncologist. And uh, we lived in Auburn, Alabama for uh, about 17 years, and we were married for 19 and three quarters years. And um, I understood her pain points as a physician, as a cancer doctor, um, by being her husband. And then she got sick and self-diagnosed herself with cancer, with stomach cancer, mm-hmm. which led to about 10 months of um, her passing from that moment. We had 11 hospital admissions and she had 18 days um, on hospice, home hospice before um, before her passing. And I've I've come to know a number of pain points in the healthcare space, both personally and from my wife's professional experience and with my logistics background, um, I think we can have a much better output in quality care experience that's centered on the patient um, needs and their environments. And we just need better documentation of who's doing what and patient engagement is is lacking currently, I would argue. Yeah, very much so. Um, I know when I'm going in for my checkup and just kind of routine things, I kind of want to be in and out. And I understand the doctor's time is valuable. But when you're in a situation with a diagnosis that uh, is definitely a severe condition, a severe situation, you want that quality time. You need that quality time because in absence of that time, you find yourself on all sorts of websites just trying to figure out exactly, you know, what you have, how did it happen, and what can you do to solve it? And a lot of times in the internet, uh, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of information that's not responsible. So so walk me through what paths and how paths works to increase that care management, increase that care quality, and really strengthen those gaps that are between the patient and the provider. Sure. Um, In short, I think patients need to eat when they're hungry. Um, What I mean by that, when you're completely overwhelmed in a moment, you just found out you have cancer or your sister has stage four breast cancer, let's say, Um, it's it's a very traumatic experience for everybody involved. Mm -hmm. Learning everything about what you're going through in that moment, there's a lot of data that suggests that we can't retain it. You only retain about 17% of what you hear on a normal day, much less when you have a traumatic event that you're trying to manage. Um, what PAS allows you to do is to go home with your doctor after the appointment with all the knowledge and wisdom of that doctor packaged in a way that will make sense to the patient and in a way that the doctor wants to give that information. So to give you an example, yes. you, you have, um, let's say that you were, your loved one was just uh, diagnosed with um, prostate cancer. Well, you've known what it is, but it's never been intimate or personal to you until this moment. Um, What does the doctor want you to know about that particular disease? So to have a curated content of videos, documents, audio files, um, webinars for support groups, um, forms for you to fill out in ready-made fashion that's all that creates a step-by-step process inside of a path, which is hence the name, so every every patient gets a custom URL of where where they are in their journey and think of it as homework or things that they want you to know prior to coming back to your next appointment. Excellent. So this how does PASS curate 
the data, the information going out to the patient? Is some of it created in-house? Do you have connections or relationships with particular sources of information? Um, I'm going to say both. Uh, okay. The the easiest way is for doctors to say, hey, there's a video that I've been using for five years. Now I'm going to load it into basically a, a library to use. Um, and then you can pull in that document or that video or podcast like this um, into a path with with just seconds of work. Um, you also may want to go to what we call our public library or our marketplace and pull down um, documents or forms or videos that is freely available to anybody um, inside the marketplace. So some of it's in-house, some of it um, through some providers that we're vetting now. Um, you, uh, there's two in particular where, where we, we have a heavy focus in cancer, um, where we have j just over 2,000 resources that we want to make at the disposal of the doctors to build paths. That's anything from how to manage Medicare, Medicaid, to uh, stress, to um, life after death in, in some cases. Um, the better you can equip your patients and, your, and the caregivers and you have documentation of them being equipped, you can start to paint a, paint a much better picture of is this information useful or is it not? And we, we have to have the, the documentation piece, I haven't mentioned much, but if you watch 10% of a video, then the medical team knows that you've watched 10% of the video you've given, or you've done every step on the path and you've completed the path. We, we need empirical evidence of the relationships built and the lives touched. And we need a way to hold hands across the continuum, not only within that medical practice, but across other medical practices in order to ensure that the patient's needs are being met. And not only the physical needs, the, the, either the symptoms or the actual root cause, but it's, it's all of those um, services that they need from social services through the social workers to um, transportation and things like that. So um, it, it has to be comprehensive enough that it's an omni win for everybody involved. And when I and just when, when I mean an omni win, it has to be a win for the patient, a win for the medical team, a win for the office manager of that medical team, and a win for the doctors themselves. All right. So, so it's definitely what I'm hearing is um, the, the patients, the caregivers, that family unit are the ones inputting this information. From there, you're kind of like, okay, you're shaking your head. Walk, walk me through a scenario because I really love the social aspect of it. And I also wanted to ask a question regarding kind of the psychological aspect of it. Like, are there resources from that side to help with the anxiety and kind of the, the stress that is caused when you receive this diagnosis? Are those resources also available along with the clinical and the administrative? Sure. I would say the biggest resource, and it might sound funny to you, but it's the confidence that you're going to get the best care possible from mm -hmm. your the doctor that you're going to receive. Confidence is a huge resource. 
it, the program is the, the past system is designed for the administrators, for those in the medical practices to build the path. So they're the ones pulling in the videos based on where you are in your journey. I want you to know this about this type of cancer, or it could be dementia or something else. But this type of cancer, I want you to, to read this PDF. I want you to be a part of this podcast. And I want you to listen to the, the social aspects of it, let's say. And then they're going to curate something basically prescribing a path to that patient based on all these thousands of resources available. And they're going to create a, a unique URL. It's just a digital link that's, that can be on a QR code or it can be um, sent into the, a, the EHR um, or it could be um, emailed to them for them to go through that unique path. And the, the medical team, because they created that path, they have the data associated with it. They know how much of that path has been consumed and how much hasn't. So you know where to start the next conversation with your clients when they come in the door again. To know that there's a food insecurity or a transportation issue, that's information that the source, the patient, the caregiver, the family will have to input. So, so we're really big, of course, Weedy, we're really big on data. And the best data that comes in allows you and providers to offer the best care. So, you know, stupid question, but talk, oh, not a question, but just an open statement. Talk about the importance of data in your line of work. It's so key because it not only allows the base idea of I have cancer, I feel this particular way, but also I might have something else and there might be a food insecurity. I might have transportation issues. So, so it's so important to have that comprehensive data you know, file, that all that data coming in so then you can sure. curate this very customized care package. And that's, you were talking about you know, confidence. That's where I would feel the confidence in. If, if, mm -hmm. if I get this folder or a file that has all these links and all these different things that exactly speak toward what I'm needing and what I have or what I'm asking for, definitely my confidence is through the roof, which might help me psychologically and make <laughs> me feel a little more positive about my treatment. Yeah. You're going to go, wow, I have an action plan. I, yeah. have, I have been given not not a folder that's a hard copy of all this stuff that's so generic it doesn't speak to me. I've mm -hmm. been given actual referrals, been given um, a, a comprehensive plan based on my unique needs, and there's documentation of all of that, and there's documentation of what I've done with it. So mm -hmm. on the patient side, there's a level of accountability, but on mm -hmm. the provider side, you can make referrals for resource and security. Um, giving you the ability to cr create a transportation um, through like a lift, let's say, because if if your practice is one that loses, let's say, $250 with every no-show and you have somebody that has trouble getting there, you could provide transportation to them, whether spend $7 or have a, a loss leader of $214, let's say, if with a, with a patient no-show. So... You, you can hold hands in so many unique ways. To me, it's like the wild, wild west of patient engagement and optimizing that patient and doctor experience. Um, when it comes to the data and what the data means, um, it'll probably be a, I don't know if the answer will sound silly to you, but we're not going to be interpreting the data. I think it's a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. He who collects the data should not interpret it. 
what we have is the ability for organizations, for medical clinics to create paths. And within those paths, they're going to know who is engaged with their educational curriculum and who is not. Then they get to look at what I would call the causations or not of what that engagement has looked like. Who's been the top 10% performers in engagement? What are their outcomes? Who have been the bottom 10% performers with that, with a timestamp, mind you, and what are the outcomes? We don't have this knowledge now. And if we have a better understanding of where people fall off the bus, we have a better understanding of how to help them or what Mm -hmm. is going to be a more meaningful way. Um, How... If, if you just think of how Facebook does what it does, and I'm not sure how much you know about the science behind it, but they create what they call um, voodoo dolls of every person uh, that's alive. Mm-hmm. So for every account there is, there's a fake one that represents you. And they're trying to figure out, they put test formulas of ads in front of those voodoo dolls saying, we think this person, okay, let's say it's you, Michael. Um, we think because of Michael's, feeds in the past, we think what's going to happen to him in the future if we put these ads in front of him are mm-hmm. is X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then we give Michael that actual ads and we see if his behavior is exactly what we thought his voodoo doll was going to be, right? What happens when we start using behavior analytics in a way that helps patients instead of does what the Facebooks of the world does, right? Mm-hmm. What happens when we start getting much better at behavior analytics by just giving patients the confidence of transportation or of holding their hands in different ways um, or, or having them watch a video about why you need to take your blood pressure medicine and watching that pill go down the throat in the three-dimensional model and you're watching it breaking apart and you, you and you see it actually dissolving and breaking down, you know, the things that's within your um, bloodstream, how that makes a measurable and positive difference. We don't have tools like that. And yeah. that should be the next phase of education, but it, it has to be patient, patient-centric if we're going to move the dial, I would argue, based on on what we have today. Yeah, I absolutely love it. I think the question I had in my head is just rhetorical, but like you get those pamphlets and, you know, brochures all the time of, you know, situation, what's next? And you're answering that, you know, you're, you're kind of giving them this great kind of roadmap toward this is what's next, you know, like we're going to give you the confidence to continue going. Uh, through these fantastically curated files and documents and videos. We're speaking with Kermit Farmer here, founder of uh, Paths on the Collective Voice of Health IT. Just a great conversation. I love improving the patient experience. Um, I did have a question regarding provider and administrative burden, provider burden. We're very big on that here at Weedy. Um, it's, It's from a layman talking for about 19 minute perspective. It seems that the providers would be doing more work than what's kind of quote unquote expected of them in 2023. I'm assuming I'm wrong. How does paths address my assumptions regarding provider burden? Mm-hmm. Um, how to answer that, Michael? <laughs> um, the best way I can put it into the language of that provider burden, think of a medical clinic, is what are your non-billable issues that you have in your office? Mm-hmm. And you a lot of 
doctor offices have that pitted sink. I was like, well, they call back for the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, and you can't bill for that, can you? Mm -hmm. I was like, and we give them the information and they don't listen. I was like, well, has the information been provided in a way where they were at calm and at peace and that was on their phone or was it in a big packet that was so daunting and overwhelming that it didn't make any sense? Or a lot of times, like I've recently, um, my, my son had a procedure done and he's coming out of, um, coming off of Profoval and they gave him about 17 bullet points to remember coming down from Profoval mm. before they discharged us. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that the timing of when we communicate and engage with the patient is important. Um, I also think um, how it's displayed and communicated is important. Mm. And even given the ability to recall that information with, with Q&As is important, which we also have inside of our path. So you can get to the, the, the nitty gritty. Um, One uh, practice that I want to brag on is a gynecology practice that's using us now. And um, she has started her workflow with all patients using the path structure. So she put in a video introducing herself that says, hi, I am your new gynecologist. And then after that is is a form that she created. That's her new onboarding uh, form for being a new patient. And there's 98 whopping questions for that. And then there's protocols of the the practice, and then there's a few other things, and then there's another 90-second video that says, we're looking forward to to seeing you. She has gotten really great um, feedback on that. Um, My favorite of all is an 83-year-old who says, I had a chance to get to know you before I even walked into the store. And that patient filled out the 98-question form and was happy she didn't have to sit there with a clipboard and get it done. It, when all the patients walk in at the same time and they have clipboards, if they're still doing out, filling out the forms, um, you, the patients cannot be seen until it's put into the, the EHR. Um, and without when multiple people walk in at the same time, let's say you have to pick and choose who goes first and then everybody's behind. And once you get behind in medicine, you just stay behind. Mm -hmm. There's so much that can be done prior to an appointment. And then so much that can be done after an appointment, especially with outpatient procedures that says, Hey, here's your homework. I'm going to tell you everything now, but let me give you videos on how to, to change a dressing on something or how to manage your diabetes. Um, that it it just provides a new mechanism to to cut down on the the administration burden cost of we've given instructions but they didn't follow the instructions mm-hmm. um, and now they're having to p- do damage control because they didn't follow the verbal instructions. Uh, we have too many tools at our disposal today for us to do only analog engagement, I would argue. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a beautiful thing. Like when there's this guy that used to sit on a mountain, I don't know, Mount Sinai, and he talked to, to, to the thousands, right? And and that was 2000 years ago. And that was our only real means of getting information out is from one person's voice to another. We have too many tools at our disposal in this age for us to still 100% depend on what comes out of the doctor's mouth. Mm-hmm. We needed the ability to send the doctor home with the patients and with the caregivers to have their needs met. 
Um, and if I'm wrong on this, I'm, I'll be fine. Perhaps the company won't work. But my wife was a relentless educator in the cancer space, and she spent a lot of time with her patients. And she wouldn't let them go until they understood exactly what was going on, and they had a game plan. And the emotional weight, I'd like to think, led to, to her stress and, and possibly her demise. Um, doctors are burning out at an alarming rate, mm -hmm. and we don't have more doctors that want to jump into this endeavor because there's there's more cons than pros. We've got to get back to being patient-centric. Yeah. No, no, that's perfect. It was a fantastic answer. You're, you're playing the long game. You've, the, the, the comprehensive, detailed feel of what PATHS does reduces the idea of callbacks and check-in time delay. So that, that was excellent. Uh, once again, speaking with Kermit Farmer, founder of Paths here on the Collective Voice of Health IT. Um, before I go to my final question, I wanted to talk about, are, are there any um, issues that you've ever run into regarding generational slash technological gaps um, with some of the patients saying, you know, there's some of us who still prefer face-to-face -face at all times um, that they're not going to use their phone or the computer or unable to uh, pull up all that information. Um, I'm assuming that the curating of the data and your experience also takes into account uh, more virtual visits and, you know, wanting to see someone face to face, you know, a lot of our older, um, you know, citizens out there may have trouble technologically uh, grasping what's next from, you know, their phone or from their caretaker's phone. Have you run into any issues regarding generational gaps or technological gaps? Um, to date, and we're pretty early on now, but to date, I'm surprised we have not had more of those okay. issues. Excellent. Um, those that have created the account, uh, we, we either have an all or none if they actually um, go to the process of creating the account, which is a, a part of it for each patient. Um, and they do step one. Typically, we have like an 83% chance of them completing the whole path because they find value in whatever that first step is and then the second step. Um, are there people that, that don't want to use a phone at all? Yes. Or don't want anything digital? Yes. Mm -hmm. What healthcare is today isn't what it's going to be 10 years from now. And today, if, if we had to walk, if, if we wanted to get a flight and we wanted to drop everything and go to a, a, um, a travel agent just to book a flight, or we had to go in person to Delta at uh, at the airport to book a flight, everybody would be up in arms, right? We, we have the ability to go, hey, I have a need, and it's a flight, and you can book a flight on your phone, and then you can cancel that flight, and then you can make other arrangements based on that flight. Mm -hmm. Our health is far too important for us to have the rudimentary tools that we have of how I'm going to have my needs met because of the antiquated systems that we have in place. And people's lives are, are hurt by that. Mm -hmm. And it's not that we don't have the tools readily available. We're not leveraging the, the, the simple things that we have, and we don't have a, a, an agreement on the best way of, of, of using that. So, um, collectively, we need to be more patient-centric, I believe, in the healthcare space, and we can do better. Yes. 
No, no, fantastic. And that was kind of a question I didn't get to ask about the future of healthcare, but definitely patient-centric. And we're seeing it now through regulations, through the ability of patients being more of an advocate for themselves and possessing their data and being able to move that data around and utilizing organizations like PATHS is really the the start of the future that I see in healthcare. Uh, Before I go, um, anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners to learn more about you, about PATHS, and about being uh, adopting and understanding the evolution of healthcare as a patient-centric experience now? Well, again, Michael, thank you for letting me be on your show. And I have to say that I love your haircut from one bald guy, Thank one you. bald guy to another. We, um, exactly. we are rocking it here, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, uh, the future of healthcare, we, everybody is talking about AI. Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's going to be a part of that. I, I think we collectively, especially those in it, um, are going to be just hyper mindful. It's, um, we use the term what's called garbage in and garbage out. Um, the o- the yes. only thing that it's going to pull from is resources that are available. And, you, and we have to make sure that it's pulling from the best practices when it comes to helping those in medicine. Um, with, with what we're doing, um, we're going to be, we're fortunate enough to, to work with some, some heavy hitters. So path curation is going to be easier with um, with um, AI, but um, I would argue your, your, the database of which you're pulling from cannot be in a Pandora's box. And anybody mm-hmm. who wants to be first to market in that space, um, I, I, I would just caution those out there that being first to market in AI may not be the best thing. I would argue you have to get certain things right and patients the data and their personal protection is of the utmost importance. And then the information that is fed to them through artificial intelligence um, has to be of the utmost importance. And we need controls and mechanisms in place that it can be quick, quickly tweaked if it's not meeting the needs of, of our society. Excellent. Uh, Kermit Farber. Founder of Pathos, um, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I wish you all the best. I think it's a fantastic website and a fantastic service that you're providing, not only for the patients, but for the providers as well. Thank you for having us here. If, if anybody's interested, they, they can go to www.villagepaths.com. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast, where the healthcare IT communities connect collaborate, and create solutions for a better health system. Find all our episodes as well as information on our association on our website, wedi.org. Thank you for joining us and be safe.